Good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We'll finish out Genesis chapter 11 and start Genesis chapter 12 um, this morning. We know that, that with any number of people coming in, that we come in from all sorts of, of different backgrounds. We come in all sorts of different places spiritually. Some are, are seeking. Some are, have been believers for a long time. And no, no matter where we are, the, the Word of God is what's to have its say in our lives. The Word of God is what's to address us, to either call us to Himself, God Himself, or to equip us further to live for the glory of God. And so each and every week, we, we turn to the Word of the Lord to inform us and instruct us, to teach us, train us, correct us, reprove us where we need it, that we might be a church that would be honoring to its head the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to to that end, would you guys join me in prayer as we open up God's Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. It's merciful of You to speak into creation, to speak into our lives. And that's what I pray would happen this morning, that we would hear You from Your Word. God, thank You for breathing it out, inspiring it, every part of it, that we might be trained and corrected and reproved and, and all those things so that we might be uh, glorifying to You and Your name and honoring to You. So I pray that You would uh, remove all distractions, whether they be internal or external, uh, that we might hear from You clearly. And God, I pray that You'd be honored in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've been working through Genesis, what we've seen so far is, is, is a cycle of disaster since Genesis chapter 3. We've seen a cycle of sin and brokenness since the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and walk in their own path. And, and we've seen this as, as we've moved from, not just in the Garden, but as that line passed down, as the, the sin that was cursed from Eve and Adam was passed down to Cain, we saw very, very quickly how, how sin spiraled out of control, how, how it caused a lot of damage as, as Cain attacks his brother, kills his brother. But then it didn't stop there. We got one generation in. We're already to almost like the the max of of what you can do to another human being. But it got worse and worse. And and violence and sin and brokenness spread more and more and more. And so I hope as we've gone through the book of Genesis, you've seen just just how bad, how sad, how broken the state of of the human beings is now after the fall. We we get this progressing all the way up until the flood where things are so bad. Everybody's intention is evil all of the time that God has to bring this this flood to to judge and to cleanse the earth. And then what did we see after that? We thought, man, God has this righteous man, Noah. He's cleansed the earth. Things will be great now. But what do we see from Noah? He he gets drunk and and naked and his kids are even worse. I mean, it just is spiraling out of control. And the reality is, is that we know this in our own lives as well. Is that all the sin and brokenness and the cycle of sin is, is not just something that we see in the Scriptures, but it's something that we see in our own lives. It's easy to see it externally, right? It's easy to see it in, in the world. It's easy to see it in people around us. But we know it all too well in our own lives as well. That there's this cycle of sin that just keeps going and going. And, and we've got to wonder already, we're 10, 11 chapters in, what's the solution? The, the flood didn't do it. The coverings that God gave Adam and Eve weren't, weren't enough to cover their sin. The, the flood didn't cleanse everything because all people weren't taken out. Where's, where's help? What's, what's God going to do 
to, to bring about some resolution to all the sin and all the brokenness and the cycle that's going on as we've seen through 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Where's the, where's the seed that God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that, that would come and stomp the head of the seed of the serpent? Well, we've seen a lot of the seed of the serpent. Where's the seed from the woman that will triumph and prevail? What will God do? We have this world of now confusion after Babel where God confuses languages and people are dispersed and running rampant in their sin and, and there's a world of confusion. What will God speak into this? Now I love, and I think this helps pinpoint where we are in Genesis, what one author has said when he says, Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and of curse from Adam through Cain through the floods of Babel begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God doesn't leave the nations, the world, all of humanity in a world of confusion, but instead He graciously seeks to bless all peoples, all nations through Abraham. That's what we'll see today in Genesis 11 and starting in Genesis 12. So what we're looking at is the mission of God. What is God doing in response to all the brokenness and sin and the cycle that continues to go over and over? We see the mission of God and it's a mission to bless all of the families of the earth, all of the nations of the earth, through a seed, through a people. And it starts with Abraham. I think that we are meant to see this morning in in this passage that, that God wants us to step into His mission as well. By believing His promises and letting those promises that He gave to Abraham and on down, letting them fuel our obedience to Him as well. See, we we fail often to see that the privilege of the invitation to step into the mission of God or the greatness of His promises that cut off the fuel that is meant to be there for our response to Him, for our obedience to Him. And so the passage this morning, it shows us all three. The invitation to the mission of God, the promises for the mission of God, and the response that is necessary when the Word of God comes. And so as the text turns primarily to the human character Abraham, we've got to wonder, how did we go from the confusion at Babel and those nations to Abraham? You remember we read Genesis chapter 10, this table of nations had nothing to do with the Israelites, or so we thought. And now we're going to have a connection. The text begins to bridge the gap from chapter 10 to 11 to on out throughout the Scripture. So look in chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. And when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sareg. And when Reu lived after he fathered Sareg 207 years, he had other sons and daughters. And when Sareg had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sareg lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. 
And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There we get it, right? There's the connection. There's the link that the Israelites who would have originally read Genesis were looking for, right? Where's the connection to us? Where are we at in this whole story? And here we start to see it with, with Terah, who has this son whose name is Abram. And now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, the, of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the daughter of Milcah and Iscah, or the father of Milcah and Iscah. And now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So now we have the connection from all these nations that we saw in Genesis chapter 10, from Adam and Eve, the line that's been followed, all the way down now to Terah and Abram. We, we understand this, right? Father Abraham. So the line of Shem goes down to Terah, goes to Abram. The connection for the people of God has been made now. And, and it's been made through... People being fruitful, multiplying, having offspring. We've gone through several generations. And all these people are having offspring, it seems, except for this one that's very noticeable. And her name is Sarai, who's going to become a major character in the book of Genesis as we go on. Now, this is a noticeable tension. If you are the Israelites reading this and you're seeing, oh, oh, there's, there's Abram, there's where we're coming from. But you also see Sarai is barren. Then you're saying, okay, there's tension in the story because somehow Abraham is our father and yet Sarai is barren. And so how is this going to be solved? But readers are seeing the, the gap being bridged from Noah to all the way down to Abraham. And so they're, they're aware of how their connection is fitting into this whole world of nations. There's, there's There's an answer to their problems, but there's also tension in their story. And to all the confusion and all the brokenness and all the disaster, we start to see God working, calling one to to bring an answer to all that's going on in the world. Now, what's what's good here is that when we see Babel and all the confusion that God brings, there's there's no scrambling up in heaven like, oh man, what am I going to do now? The flood didn't work. Now Babel's going up and they're all crazy. I better figure something out. There's no scrambling from heaven to to put together a plan. He's not concerned about how am I going to make my plan move forward. No, he, he speaks. We see this in 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is what God in His mercy does. Is there is confusion, there is brokenness, there is sin, and God in His mercy, in His grace, He speaks into these things. He doesn't withdraw and pull back and say, you guys figure this out. You know, maybe Abraham can get this thing, you know, right the ship a little bit. No, he speaks into these things. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He intervenes. He speaks into like we saw in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, there's, there's chaos, God speaks into the chaos and He brings order. There's chaos, there's confusion from battle. Babel, God speaks into that confusion, that chaos, and He brings order. He commands His creation. So He speaks to Abram, He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now, Abraham receives this call, and, and Acts chapter 7 gives us a little bit better time frame. As, as Stephen is speaking, as, right before he, he dies, he gives this great account to God. And, and Stephen speaks about this account. He says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So he reminds us here that, that Abraham receives this call before his father dies, before they even moved to here, and while they lived in the land of Ur with the, with the Chaldeans. This is when, when Abraham receives this. And Abraham receives two commands from the Lord in chapter 12. There's a lot of uh, debate and stuff that goes into the, these 1 through 3, chapters 12, 1 through 3, of, of what he's saying. But I think that, with, with some smarter people than me, that there are two commands go, being given to Abraham here. There, there are commands to go and the command to be at the end of verse 2. And each command has with it three promises. Three promises that undergird, that support the commands that God gives. It's a reminder that anything and everything that God commands, He provides for. That all that He asks, He always provides. He doesn't send someone out and not also provide what they need to fulfill it the way that He wants it fulfilled. Now one author has said that in a relationship with God, there are commands or obligations to be obeyed and fulfilled. We ought to know this. You're going to come in a relationship with God. They are things that you need to obey. He is the authority and we are not. But these are always surrounded and supported by the mighty promises of God. Always supported by the promises of God. Never meant to be done on our own. Never meant to be supported by something other than God and His promises. When I was in high school, I took AP Calc my senior year. Might not have been a good decision. All my cool friends were doing this. I was like, okay, whatever. I'll do this too. And so our teacher, really good teacher, actually, she was convinced that every single one of us in our class was going to pass the AP Calc test at the end of the year. I knew this to be false right away. Because I knew I was going to be at least one of them that wasn't going to pass it. Like There was just a, not a capacity in my mind to figure these things out. So I, calc was the end. I had stopped there and I could not go to advanced. Calculus was not my thing. So I was sent into the test. She thinks I'm prepared and equipped to take this test and that I will probably pass the test. I'm guessing that's what she thought of me. She had great hope. And of course, I, I mean, long story short, I did not pass the test. I got the lowest score you can get. I went into that test without having the equipment mentally to be able to pass this test. The teacher was not her fault. She thought that she was equipping us well. She probably did a good job on her end. But God did not equip me to pass that AP Calc test. Thankfully, God also hasn't called me to pass any AP Calc tests so that I'm not out of line with the will of God. But we know that that will never be true of what God commands of us. That everything He commands of us, everything He desires for us, He will provide for us. That that is that He will support, He will encourage, He will keep us. That the the weight of all this obedience is really from Him. He is going to give us what we need to be able to handle all of these things. And so the, the thing is, is if we feel the weight of God's commands without the weight of His promises, then we are off of what God would have for us. And what we are trying to do in obeying the Lord won't function the way we want it to function. Because we will not properly feel the the weight and the support that we were meant to feel and have for our lives. The, The weight of God's commands, apart from God's promises, can keep us from obedience, can keep us from stepping into the mission of God. 
So we should feel the weight of God's commands. As the people of God, we look to God as our Father, as our Lord, and He commands us. We ought to feel the weight of that. We want to do what He says. But we also need to feel the weight of His promises. And how great they are, and how weighty they are, and let those support us in stepping out in obedience to Him. Because the reality is He gives us both. He wants us to hold on to both. He wants both of these things held together that we might walk in faithful obedience to Him. This is why He not only gives us the promises, but He wants us to remember His promises. He writes it down for us to train us, to be reminded of over and over again. And so to Abraham, He gives commands, but He gives promises as well. So He says to Abraham, go. That's a weighty command. He is asking Abraham to leave everything. To leave your father's house. To leave the place you've already grown up in that you know. This is weighty. Right? Uh, his sense of identity would have been in his father's household. What your father did, you did. So when you say, you know, James and John, they were sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen because their father was a fisherman. That's the way it was. You didn't need to go to career fair to figure out what you're going to do. Whatever Terah did, that's what Abram was going to do. Alright? You just teach me and I'll just do what you do. So his identity, his, his work, everything is found in his father and his father's household. His name, he's being called, he's Abram, son of Terah. That's who he is. That's his identity. His inheritance. Tied up with his father. So I'm guessing that when he starts working for his father, there's a vested interest there. Like, I want you to do well because you need to give me your inheritance. Right? All that he's known, all that Abraham is, it's rooted here, and God says to go from that thing. That's a weighty command. That's a really big deal. In this time, in that time, in any time, that is a weighty command. But what does God do? He doesn't just say, go, good luck. God says, go, but He supports this command. And He supports it with three promises. And notice all the I wills in these promises. That is, notice God's work. What God is promising to do. What He is promising to fulfill on His side. But what does He say? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. So a big command is followed up with some big promises from God. So in this command and in these promises, here's what we have implied. That that God is going to give Abraham some land. That He is going to give him some offspring, some, some children. In this land. The second command he gives to Abram is the end of verse 2, when he says, I will bless you and make your name great, so that, and this is the imperative here, that you will be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. That is, you are to be about the good and the life and the enhancement of those that you come in contact with. So Abraham is specifically called to be an agent for blessing to all of the families. We get families from verse 3 or nations, the same kind of thing, same concept we're going for. All of the families, all of the nations of the earth. Now I think that families is right. There's these small units. I mean, you saw this in, in Joshua. Achan is taken all the way down to his family for their sin. And that's the same word here, that they are talking about small units. They're talking about all of the families of the earth are to be blessed. And so there are three promises that are to be through Abraham, but for others. So he says, I'll bless those who bless you. That's one. I'll curse those who curse you. And all the nations will be blessed through you. Now think what's interesting about those promises that he gives Abraham there. Is that the one says, those who bless you, those, plural, who bless you, I will bless. But the one, the one 
who curses you, I will curse. So he switches from, from plural to singular. And I think that it just once again shows us the intent and desire of God. That many would bless Abraham and many would be blessed. And that few would curse Abraham and that few in response would be cursed. And so we're starting to see, here's the plan, here's the mission of God in response to the sinfulness, the brokenness, all of the confusion in the world. It's coming through Abraham. This is the mission. This is the plan. Now there's a, a, a big deal thinking about plans. I don't venture into this topic often because there are some Star Wars aficionados here. But in that movie, in that series, plans are very important. So much so that when one plan is stolen, like they have to hide out and run away and try to figure out a way to get this plan to someone that can do something about it. So there's, there's Death Star plans. Everybody wants their hands on on these plans so they can figure out how to take down the Death Star before the Death Star takes them out. And the Death Star and these plans, it shows the intent of the Empire. It shows what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to destroy planets, I guess, in Star Wars. So they're wanting to wipe out whole races. But we see the intent, right? It's evil intent, bent on destruction, bent on killing. And so here, when we see the mission of God, when we see the plan of God through Abraham, we see God's intent. We see God's hearts. We get a glimpse into who God is even further. And who is God? He's a God who desires that all nations, all families of the earth be blessed. That's His mission. That through Abraham, all nations, all families will be blessed. That is that God wants good for all peoples. All people groups, all nations, all families of the earth, God wants good. Not just some of them. If we think that God wants to bless one nation and not another, then we are off of the mission of God. And we are not... Uh, in sync with His heart for the world that He has created. He wants all of them to be blessed. And His answer is to call Abraham to this mission. He wants His blessings to flow to all families of the earth. That is, we ought to see God's intent and who He is, and He is good. Only a good God wants blessings to all the peoples of the earth. Only a good God wants to bring about the good for all peoples and not just some. He's not a God for the powerful and the rich and for the great countries. He's a God for the small and the tiny, all the families of the earth. He wants blessing there. He wants good there. This is our God. And though the earth and all the people in it keep rebelling against Him, building towers in rival to Him, He keeps wanting to bless. He works. He plans. He sins. He's wanting good. God is so patient. No one, no one came in here today neutral toward God. No one has come in neutral since Genesis 3. No one is neutral toward God anymore. Many of you may have come in with bitterness toward God. God has done this, this has happened in my life, and it seems like God should have done something different. And so there's bitterness there maybe. Or anger. How could God have let this happen? Or maybe some of you just have big questions about God. I, who is this God? Why is He doing these things that He's doing or not doing the things that I want Him to do? Maybe some of you have come in with, with apathy toward God or hesitations about God. Whoever you are, you can know that, that the God that we're speaking about, the, the one true living God, the God of the Bible, is a good God. 
There's, there's more that we could say about that, but at least that from the intention here that we see in His mission to bless all the families of the earth, we got to know that this God is a good God and that He wants good. He wants blessing to flow even to us. That is a merciful and kind and good God. He wants our blessing, not our harm. And so He works a plan, a mission to bring that about. This is a big mission. Bless all the families of the earth? That's a big mission. With some big promises that Abraham's name is going to be great and blessings are going to flow to all the nations. And so the question comes like, why, if that is your mission and it's that big, would you call Abraham? What is it about this man that would make you call him to be the agent for this mission moving forward? Now Abraham was from Ur. And you're is a place that is known for its worship toward not the one true living God, but toward the moon God, and the sun God, and other gods. They, they were known, they, they had built structures, and known as a place of pagan, idolatrous worship. Joshua 24.2 tells us this. Joshua said to all the people of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, and they served other gods. Quite the lineage. I don't know if Joshua was trying to break them down before he builds them up. They're like, your fathers that you look to, they were pagan worshipers. <laughs> why would you point that out? And why would God call Abraham if he's, if he's stuck in idolatrous worship with his family? The reality is that Abraham wasn't predisposed to loving God and faith. He wasn't a likely candidate. He didn't necessarily have more potential within him. What is going on here is that God is gracious. Abraham was like all of us. Not neutral toward God. Not predisposed to loving God and living a life of faithfulness. Not more righteous than any of us. But God was gracious. Beyond the fact that Abraham was was from this pagan, idolatrous place... He he happens to be married to someone who is barren. The promises that God had given him implied land and people. And he happens to be married to someone who who cannot have children. This This is some big tension here. So why would God call someone who was a pagan worshiper and who had a wife who can't have children? Because God always, every single time He calls someone, calls someone to display His grace and His power in them. Every single time. Abraham wasn't more righteous than anyone else. He didn't have more potential than anyone else. He didn't have the right stuff. God is just gracious. Why choose, if this is the mission, to bless all the nations, why not choose another way? Why choose a person at all? There are several. We've seen the power and the might of why choose a person at all? It's because God is gracious. He graciously calls and graciously employs. He invites Abraham in to the privilege of stepping into his mission to bless all of the nations of the earth. That is, here's what God does. He graciously redeems sinful, broken, rebellious people. And he graciously employs them in his service, in his missions, to flow blessings to all of the nations of the earth. And this has not changed. John Stott says this, Now we 
are Abraham's seed by faith. That is, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are in Christ, by your faith in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And the earth's families will be blessed only if we go to them with the gospel. That is God's plain purpose. Galatians 3.7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. That is faith in Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. So you can sing the song if you want to. Only if you're in Christ, right? He is your father. You are his son now in Christ Jesus. That is, those who have faith are now the people of God. They are not people who are predisposed to loving God. They are not people who are simply born into a Christian household and so fall under that umbrella. They are not those who are more righteous, more likely to accept God, or people who have potential in the right stuff. They are ones who God has graciously intervened them from their hell-bound race, rescued them to be His own. That's who we are. We are not anyone special in and of ourselves. God graciously calls us, graciously redeems us. Ephesians 2 says this, that by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, so that no one may boast. The people of God are the people of God by the grace of God. That is, God's grace is the only thing that redeems and makes us the people of God. But His grace, it goes beyond that. It does more than just redeem. It also employs us. Puts us into His service. Ephesians 2.10 would say that we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ, redeemed in Christ to do what? To do good works that He has prepared for us. We're not not just saved, we're also put into the Lord's service. We're to step into His mission. And so what does God call His people to do? As those who have been redeemed, as those who have been employed, what are we employed to? What are we to do? Do we not have a command that, that sounds similar to Abraham's? To go... If you are a sojourner, we ought to know this, right? Matthew 28.19 says to go and make disciples of all nations. Eerily similar to what Abraham's task was. That's the mission of God. And it includes, as Abraham said, blessings flowing to all of the nations of the earth through a people, through the people of God. God graciously redeems, He graciously rescues people, and then He invites them and calls them and gives them a privilege of stepping into His mission that He is carrying out to bless all of the peoples of the world. And some of us hear that and we sink. Overwhelmed by what that might be. Full of shame of not carrying that out well. Full of guilt of all that we bring into this. Full of fear of what this might look like and what this would be. Some of you hear that and you think, let's go. And you're like, let's, let's, I'm ready. This is a big mission and big missions appeal to you. Maybe you're that person. Maybe what's being appealed to is, is, is pride. And adventure. So both of those responses, if not centered and held by the right things, can be just as sinful. What supported Abraham's call? What upheld it? What was Abraham to cling to as he's going out carrying out the missions of God? It was God's promises. Not his pride and sense of adventure. Not his guilt and fear to, to I gotta do this or else. God's promises supported him. They held him up. They were to be the fuel for obedience for Abraham. And they are to be the fuel for our obedience as well. 
So one author, I don't think I put this in there, but God it says this, God is constantly making promises in the Bible. They're all over the Bible. All sorts of promises. And these promises are meant to fuel the engine of obedience. Those promises are meant to fuel us, support us, uphold us. That is all that God asks. He provides. He doesn't ask us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to appeal to our pride, to appeal to our sense of adventure, to appeal to our shame, to appeal to our guilt. He appeals to us by His great promises that He has given to us to know and let those fuel our obedience to Him. And what promises has He given us? All authority has been given to me. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses. That I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That the gospel will go out to all the nations, and then the end will come. These are the promises of God that uphold us as we step into the mission of God. God graciously redeems. He graciously employs people. And and He goes and sends us out to do His saving work, to do His vital mission on the earth. But those promises are meant to fuel the obedience to that. All God asks, He provides. He equips and He sends. He redeems and He employs. It doesn't work any other way. What started it all with Abraham, what starts it all with us, What starts it all in a world of confusion is God's Word speaking. And Abraham hears the Word of God, hears the promises of God, and now it's it's his turn. Where's your response? What's the response going to be? We know this, right? This is Father Abraham. He had many sons. He's he's a faithful man. right? He, He is going to respond as a Bible hero should. This is what he did, right? He's a Bible hero. We have songs about him, so he must have responded immediately and enthusiastically. Yes, let's do this mission. I'll do whatever you say. Everything is a blessing. And I want that blessing to flow to everybody. Is that how he responded? Perfectly. Well, Acts chapter 7 told us that, that Abraham received the call before he was in Herod. So he was in Ur and before his father died. But Abraham doesn't immediately and enthusiastically leave Ur and his father's household and go to the land that God would show him. He, he instead, with his father, all of his family, they go up to Haran. And he stays in Haran until his father dies. Now we, we, we don't know why. That, all of that is uncertain. But here's what we, we do know. is that, that Abraham, just by those things, is not and cannot be this perfect picture of faith and obedience. That he wasn't the one who like immediately, enthusiastically, like, I'm leaving everything, I'm going to follow you. No, he stays with his father. He goes to another city. Now, was he going in the right direction? Yeah, seems like it. He wasn't turning and running from God like Jonah. But does he do it perfectly? No. Like all people, no. But God is gracious. And He's patient. It reminds me, this is a good quote. One author says, Sometimes... We, we relate to Abraham, right? And not following enthusiastically and perfectly. He says, Sometimes we soar flying through holy skies with grace beneath our wings. Glorious days, right? Of which they are many for us, right? No, maybe, we, maybe a little bit further. Sometimes we run, arms pumping, as we, we make good time on the Spirit's road. Hopefully we've experienced some of that. Sometimes we walk, faithfully plodding on our journey to a far country. And sometimes we may simply face in the right direction. Sitting on the path, Weighed down by burdens and cares. 
perhaps working up enough strength to crawl for a minute or two before collapsing. We identify with one of those, right? We've probably all been in at least the last one. <laughs> Seems like I do a lot of sitting, crawling. He goes on to say that the fundamental thing is to always be moving toward the heavenly city, irrespective of speed. As someone once said, God is after a long obedience. And our direction is more important than our pace. Being called into the mission of God is a big call. To go, make disciples of all these nations, to let blessings flow throughout the earth. Like That's a big and weighty call. And stepping into that can be overwhelming for the most audacious person for the biggest hero of the faith that can be overwhelming God does not call us to do these things exactly perfectly he knows that we're going to fail he wants us pointing in the right direction are we facing the right way he wants us looking to him responding to his word even weakly Even as we are on our knees trying to crawl forward, this is God's posture for us that we just be facing Him and we let Him fuel us forward. So God's Word initiates and it turns us in the right direction and the response is required, but we know that God is going to give us what we need. And Abraham responds, not perfectly, but he's facing the right direction. And he responds, if you look in verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So Abraham, he wasn't this perfect picture, but his response is pretty simple. And is facing in the right direction no matter what it is. It's imperfect, but it's simple obedience. And this is huge. That what Abraham does is just obey. Maybe weakly, maybe not perfectly, but he obeys. He's facing the right direction. And here's the reality for Abraham. There is a ton of uncertainty. There is a ton of tension. He doesn't even know where he's going. God's just going to tell him? He didn't get a map and a compass saying like, this is where you are. Just find the right coordinates and go there. God just said, just go. And I'll show you. Along the way. God told him that he was going to have you know, a great name. You don't have a great name unless you have offspring. And yet he's taking his wife with him who can't have offspring. And the stepping into the mission of God for Abram was full of uncertainty. Was full of tension. Was full of complications. And beyond that, there's, there's people in this land. If you look at the end of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan... Abram passed through the land in the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah, and at the time that the Canaanites were in the land. That's not right. I mean, I thought you were supposed to give us a land, and now there's people in here that could kill us and might do it. So what's what's going on? There's all sorts of uncertainty. There's all sorts of tension. But, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. 
And perhaps Abraham's faith grows as, as each step progresses. And he continues to respond with more faith, with more obedience than he did before. He certainly responds with faith in believing and going and worshiping his God along the way. You know, it's interesting to think about why, why is he doing this? Why is he built altars? He's kind of on the outskirts of the promised land. Why is he doing this? And one author said basically that he's perfuming the land with the odor of faith before it's even inhabited by the people of God. That he's, he's performing kind of the sacred act as he goes along the corners and the outskirts of the land that's occupied by another people. Tension remains. Uncertainty remains. But by faith, whatever strength we see here, he steps into the mission of God. Simply obeying God. So God's word had called. God's promise had supported him. And Abraham was called to response. And he responds imperfectly, but with faith and obedience fueled by the promises of God. And we see in Hebrews that Abraham was moving forward looking for a more abiding city. Something greater lay ahead, he knew. And that's what he was looking toward and for. And so even with all the uncertainty, which there was a lot, even with all of the tension, and there was a lot of that as well, he steps into the mission of God. And sometimes we think about Abraham, we think that's what stepping into the mission of God is like. And, and that is partially true. But I also, I, I've read about the story of Jim Elliot. I don't know if you've heard that story Amazing story that God used in my life to, to spur my love and stepping into the mission of God. And we think that must be what it looks like. That, I'm going I'm to leave everything and I'm going to go to the rainforest where no one has ever heard. That's what it looks like to step into the mission of God. What Abraham did, that's what it looks like to step into the mission of God. And the answer is, maybe. Maybe that's what it looks like. But maybe not. Here's what we know it looks like. I've got this quote for you that obedience to God's commands is what faith in God's promises looks like in everyday life. It, it may be in a rainforest. It may be going from, from Haran down to Canaan. But we do know that it is obedience to what God has clearly commanded to us in His Word. And so the first question is, are, are we pointing the right direction? Are we in Christ? Have we believed in God? Have we, do we trust Him? Have we put our faith in Him? And if you have, and all who have, we know that God's Word has initiated not only our redemption, but also employing us into His mission. He's initiated, He's called, He's commanded, He's promised, and now here's our chance to respond. We've got to get the right direction first. Trusting in the one true living God, looking to Him, but then, then we got to think, what might it look like then to be obedient to stepping into His mission? What, what does that look like, God, for me to step into the mission that You have called Your people to? That can look a lot of different ways. And it will look a lot of different ways. It may look like Abraham, it may look like Jim Elliot, it may look like going to work every single day in Enid and faithfully obeying all that God has commanded us. But it definitely looks like obedience. It's non-negotiable. You want to step into the mission of God? Here's what it looks like obeying God. Trusting God. It's hearing His commands. It's hearing and remembering His promises. And it's stepping in the right direction. Or crawling. Or facing the right direction. Sobbing, hoping that God would give you the strength to move forward. Now that may be across the world. For a lot of us it might be across the street. Or even across our own tables. 
But we are called to respond to all that God has called us to, to His promises, to His commands, to step into His mission. It will be something. And there's going to be a ton of uncertainty. We have no idea what it's going to look like sometimes. We have no idea if you're going to go and lose your head. We have no idea if you're going to go and lose your job. We have no idea if your family is going to shun you and hate you and cast you off. We don't know. There's going to be a ton of tension. All sorts of things to take care of that you're not going to be able to figure out on your own. All sorts of problems when you interact with people and you interact with your own heart that's, that's broken and full of sinfulness and full of tension itself. There's going to be all of those things, complications, obstacles, tension. They're going to be there, but that's when we as the people of God must do what we are meant to do and look again to the promises of God. God, you said you'd be with us always and we have to recognize you're with us. You're holding on to us more than we're holding on to you. You know, only God can deal with all the uncertainty. Only God can deal with all the tension and all the brokenness and all the, the complications and all the obstacles. Because the mission of God is not manageable to us. It was never meant to be. It's His mission. It's manageable to Him alone. And we just step into it as faithfully as we can. Obeying His word. Remembering His promises. Knowing that God has this. See, in the mission of God, we have to continue to look to, as as Hebrews said, the author and perfecter of our faith. Things are certain, but our God is not. There is tension, and Jesus is our peace. And He calls us, and He promises us, and He sends us. We must remember that God's answer to the confusion, to the brokenness, to the sin, to the cycle that we've seen already in Genesis, is not us primarily... Not Abraham primarily. Abraham gets it started. But he points on to another. And the answer to the brokenness and the cycle of sin and all the stuff that's going on then in Genesis and now in us is Jesus Christ. The one that Abraham pointed to. A person who would perfectly fulfill all that God has commanded. Remembering all that God has promised. Stepping into His mission as faithfully as possible. And Jesus does it perfectly. And yet Jesus as He completes the mission that God has for Him, then employs us and turns to us as the people of God. And now through Him and through His secure victory, His final victory, we are now called as the agents for His mission to go forward that we know that He will win. And so how will you step into the mission of God? How are you going to respond to the God's Word that has initiated in your life? There are a lot of ways, and I hope you work those out in groups and in relationships that you have. But here's what we know, that it's always in obedience, and all of them are meant to be done looking at Him. Let's pray that as the people of God, we will more faithfully, more enthusiastically, step into the mission of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we we look at the story of Abraham, we're reminded of how gracious you are to call sinners, to redeem them, to save them, to make them your own. For the believers in here today, myself included, God, would you remind us of how great, how amazing your grace is toward us broken, sinful rebels. But would you also remind us of how amazing it is and what a privilege it is that you don't just save us and put us on the shelf, but that you employ us, that you tell us to go. 
that you send us forward into your mission. And would you help us respond rightly by stepping into that mission, by faithfully obeying all that you've given us. God, we're going to need your promises and to remember those again and again as we do this. We're going to need each other to encourage one another, to exhort one another. We're going to need to love one another and pray for one another. All those things that you've commanded us to do, we're going to need that. God, we want to be faithful. God, I pray for those who who don't know who you are and have not responded to you in saving faith, that you would again show them your goodness and your grace and that you would, by your kindness, lead them to repentance. And that we as the church would be faithful, not say, I'm glad you're saved, now go sit over there in the corner and mind your own business. But we would say, God doesn't just redeem, He employs. God, raise up more. The, the, the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few and we need more. And so we're called to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. May our response be, here am I, God. Do with me as you please. God, we want to do this for your glory. Make a name for yourself. Use us. Amen.